We are in a seven-part series called The Gospel According to Moses, jet tour through the life of Moses, mainly through the book of Exodus, Exodus, departure, exit. Um, uh, that's what it means. And, it's, and we said last week, it's very important that we see Exodus as a continuation of the story of Genesis, much like the book of Acts is a continuation of the Gospel according to Luke. Exodus is the story of the, of the fulfillment or the partial fulfillment of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve, and to us in the midst of sin and rebellion in Genesis 3, that he'll send the promised uh, son, the seed of the woman who will crush and destroy sin and Satan. And uh, we see also the Abrahamic covenant that was given to Moses in, in Genesis 12 and, and 15 and 17. We see that also opening up in the book of Exodus. We see the Lord fulfilling his promise to give them a land and a lineage of, of, of people. There's a promise that he made back in, in Genesis as well. Exodus opens up with cruelty and slavery and, and captivity and bondage, but ends in deliverance and to rescue and, and worship and salvation. It's a story of the redeeming work of God for his glory and our good. Redeeming work of God for his glory and our good. Last week, we looked at the first few chapters and we saw how Exodus not only opened with uh, Israelites who were in slavery, they were, they were held in bondage so that they would not be you know, left to go so they could serve and worship the one true God, but we also saw the beginning of God's good providence, the working of his sovereign plan that delivers them from misery and slavery to serve the, the one true God. We saw him bring Israel into Egypt. We saw God spare and protect Moses in chapter 2. Chapter 3, he has a personal encounter, the burning bush with the living God, and God introduces himself as the great I am, the self-existent one, the one who exists that's unchangeable. He's eternal with no beginning and no end. Also remember from last week, we learned from this great book that slavery, biblically defined, means or is, is that we are serving and worshiping things, other things that are more important than God, treasuring anything more than God. And without God's intervention, we are desperately, we are, we are just desperately and dreadfully slaves to sin and to our idols. Serving and worshiping created things rather than the creator God, Romans 1, who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. The title of the sermon is Getting Out. We're going to see it in two parts today. Well, two parts. One today and the next time I, I preach in a couple of weeks. So the section that we're going to look at according to Moses uh, in Exodus is the, 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 the first encounter that Moses has with Pharaoh. So we're going to look at that first encounter, chapter 5 of Exodus. We'll take a, a glean at that and we'll pull some stuff out of there. Then we'll look at the plagues that came upon Egypt. And we'll just, we're not going to go through every plague, but just mention them in, in a general sense. And then we'll end with the Passover. We'll go to communion and then we'll go to our, our picnic. So here's an outline if you're, if you're one who keeps outlines. I like outlines. Helps me follow along. So first, the question spoken. Then the, uh, the plagues that were sent, and then finally the lamb that was slain. Each one dealing with chapter 5, chapter 7, and chapter 12. So that's what we're going to do. It's, it's a lot of stuff to cover. We're not going to cover it all. I know some of you, have, we've talked this week, is like, ah, I wish we could get you know, into deeper things. There's so much there to see. Well, I think we're going to go back to Exodus one of these days. We love to go through books of the Bible, so we'll do Exodus one of these days. I don't know where it is on the radar, radar but 
Um, it is an awesome book. So let's look at first the question spoken. Turn to chapter 5 if you have your Bibles. There are Bibles in the back if you don't. And let me just give you a little background as we run into chapter 5. Moses had his encounter with, with God in the burning bush. And he's, God tells him to go back to the Delta Nile, right? He says, you know, and, and, and while Moses is going back from the wilderness of the, uh, the Midian. He meets his brother Aaron on the mountain of God, and together they agree. That, uh, Aaron agrees with Moses that he will join him in ministry. And the two brothers, Moses and Aaron, go to the Israelites who are in Goshen in Egypt, and they perform these miraculous powers, these, these miracles before them, just like God told them to do. And when they saw it, they believed Moses, they believed Aaron, they believed that God had spoken to them. And at the end of chapter 4, verse 31, as Moses went back to Egypt to, to, to rescue his people, just like God said, it says in chapter 4, verse 31, and the people believed, that's the elders and the Jewish people, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and, they, and that he had seen their affliction... They bowed down their heads and worshipped. So things are going well. Moses responds to the burning bush, listens. Did a lot of complaining first. We'll get to that. But he goes and goes back to Egypt, performs the miracles, and the people are like, yes, God heard our affliction, and they worship God. Chapter 5 opens up with that scene. Now, I've got to tell you, as, as we go from chapter 4 to chapter 5, we see Moses have an interaction with Pharaoh. I, I think it's important that we just point out, Moses is a changed man, right? From living in the lush palace of Pharaoh, prideful, privileged son of Pharaoh's house, to a humble shepherd in Midian. From someone who is hesitant and reluctant at the burning bush, giving God more excuses why he shouldn't go, even though God told him to go, more excuses than, 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 a, than a second grader, why he didn't do his homework, right? And, and, and God's like, no, you are the one I want. And he goes from this, this reluctant prophet serving in Pharaoh's house to a faithful prophet serving in the house of God as his child. He grows in grace, and he's a changed man. He's confident, not in himself. We see he's confident in the work that God will do, the ultimate victory that God has said he will do. Now, he's not perfect. We've been here when we went through the book of Genesis. There's no one perfect but one. There's one hero in every story. His name is not Moses. It's Jesus. Moses is not perfect. God will have to work on his heart. But God did work on his heart and changed him at the burning bush and continues to work on Moses' heart. And you see that without groveling or wavering. He's confident. He's courageous. Chapter 5, verse 1 opens up. Thus saith the Lord... The God of Israel, let my people go, Pharaoh, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. They risk their lives, their very lives for stepping into the throne and the kingly room of Pharaoh. What can we account for that other than the powerful message and work of God? That he began to die to his prideful ways and live for others, obedient to God. He actually says in chapter 5, verse 3, what the change is all about. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. That's why the change is made, because God himself met with him. The great I am, the Jesus Christ mediating in the burning bush that allowed Moses to see the fiery hotness and the, and the holiness of God. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground, but come close. And he would have to see the holiness and the kindness 
the closeness and intimacy that the gospel brings. And now Moses is fearless to do exactly what God commanded us to do. And what we find in Moses, a couple things, let me just throw this out there, we're not going to stay on it long, but when you meet God, when you have an encounter with the real God, not the God of your mind, not the God of you made up in yourself, but the real God, there's change. There's a change of direction. It's not perfection, but there's a change in your life. Number two, when you meet God, you obey. There's a, there's a tendency, not perfect obedience, but there's a tendency, there's a, there's a turning from sin and a turning to God. The other thing that when you meet God, you have a real encounter with God, we see this throughout Scripture, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Moses, whether it's Peter, whether it's Paul, whenever God calls you in and saves you, he sends you out. You're not called to sit, you're called to preach, to teach, to proclaim, to demonstrate the love of Jesus in your community, in your life. You never see people God calls in and says, okay, sit on the sideline, just watch. He calls them in, he sends them out. He calls you in, he sends you out. He's bold. He's bold. They had met with God. He's bold. He goes before them. And what you see is the contrast in chapter 5, verse 1, between a heart that's been changed by God, that's, that's going out with the power of the gospel, to a heart that's unchanged, that's a rebellious heart. Look at what Pharaoh says in response. He's not interested in the things of God. But Pharaoh said, verse 2, Who's the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And, and moreover, I, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, hmm, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with the pestilence or with the sword. Verse 4, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Why did you gather them here? Go back. Go back to your burdens. Go back to your slavery. Here we see Pharaoh's heart began like Moses, hardened self-love, pride, but unlike Moses in the sense that Pharaoh proceeded down that path. His heart became harder and harder and never softens. He's increasingly, increasingly resistant to the will and the ways and the word of God. He's restrained. He's just resistant to God's love and God's will. You know, he thinks he's free. I'm the king. And we talked about freedom. I'm the king. I could do as I want. I'm not in bondage. At that point, what he should have done was call in, call in the great theologian, Bob Dylan, who said, you may be an ambassador to England or to France. You may, be, you may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But, come on, you're going to serve somebody. Thank you, Tony. Yes, indeed, you're going to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Pharaoh, you're in bondage. You don't know the Lord, you're not free. You think you are. Salvation, deliverance, and freedom, according to Exodus, is getting out. Getting out of bondage. That's what Exodus is all about. You can't save yourself. You can't justify yourself. You can't set your heart free from slavery by yourself. Remember, Moses did not say Free my people, let my people go so that they can go and wander and go and do as they wish. He always said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. Bondage to freedom, that they may serve me. That they may make sacrifices unto me, that's what that means. Or festivals, that's all about worship. It's about worshiping me. That's why he was 
told to let them go. And now before we throw Pharaoh under the bus, one thing I at least can say about Pharaoh, I like to do this from time to time, you know if you've been here a while, at least he's honest. I mean, what he said was true. I don't know the Lord. Right? And many of us, if we're honest too, you've heard the gospel. Maybe several times, who's the Lord that I should obey him? Who's the Lord that I should respond to him in repentance and bow my life to him? Who is he? Right? Then we all start that way. Inclined not to receive the truth of the gospel. But it is that question, who is the Lord that I should obey him, that drives the series of events known as the plagues. It was meant to ensure that Pharaoh in Egypt would know, who is this Lord? This is he. That's the, that's the question of the, of the plague. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should let you go? I'll show you. So between Exodus 5, where we're at now, all the way through Exodus 11, God declares through the ten plagues, many times, you read it for yourself, many times through the plagues, he says the same thing over and over again. Know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know, they'll know, that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel among them. He says in chapter 7, verse 4, 17, chapter 8, verse 10, 22, 9, 14, 16, 29, chapter 10, go on and on. So that you may know. You got a question? I got your answer. That's what he's saying. In many ways, chapters 1 through 4 is God's revealing of himself, showing himself to Moses. And chapters 5 through 12, it's really God showing himself to Pharaoh. You want to know who I am? I'll let you know. But let's think about this for a minute before we judge. Let's relate. Imagine yourself, if you can. You are the most powerful person in the world. Everyone bows down to you. Everyone bows down to you. You are the ruler of the known world. Okay? You have a huge workforce. Some rebel murderer says, listen, release your workforce right now, or God's going to get you. Be like, okay, get this guy out of here. Right? I mean, like, really? Really? That's really going to happen? God will reveal himself as the father of Israel who knows and cares about the suffering of his children. God will reveal himself as the God of salvation and deliverance by bringing judgment on the house of Pharaoh. God will reveal himself as one who who chose Israel by leading his people through the sea on dry land until the Egyptians themselves will recognize, the Egyptians will recognize, chapter 14, verse 25, that the Lord is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. It says in chapter 14, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The Exodus was God's way of giving Pharaoh an education in theology, right? The doctrine of God, I'll show you. By his own admission, Pharaoh was an unbeliever, which I got to tell you, as I said before, to some degree, I admire that. And I've had that conversation with some of you, maybe even here this morning. You know, I'm not there, Pastor. I'm not ready to bow my knee. I'm not ready to, to submit to Jesus. I know what it means for Jesus to be king, Lord, reigning, ruling, sovereign one over the world. I know what it means for him to save my sin that I must 
turn from my sin and trust in him. I'm, I'm not there. I, I could talk with that. We could talk. We can dialogue. We, we, we could pray about that. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus. And you don't. Yeah, I'm a Christian. You're not. That's so much harder. Pharaoh's really resistant, saying, you know what? I don't know the Lord. I don't know him. In fact, what's even harder in, in, for Sarah, uh, Pharaoh is that the culture of that day, Pharaoh was set up as a god, small g himself, in his own land. He was like a god. He was, he, he was a representative of the gods. There's a man by the name of Henry Frankford. He's a Dutch, ready for this? Egyptologist. Never heard of it before, but I did now. Egyptologist. In other words, he knows a lot about Egypt, and he's an archaeologist. He says this. In the person of Pharaoh, a superhuman being had, take, had taken charge of the affairs of men. And this great blessing, which ensured the well-being of the nation, was not due to a fortunate accident, but had been foreseen in the divine plan. The monarchy then was as old as the world, for the Creator himself, this is what they believe, had assumed kingly office on the day of creation. Pharaoh was his descendant and his successor. And you can see this in the practical way in chapter 5, when, 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 when Moses says in chapter 5, verse 9, go back to the work that you were, you're doing, it's the same Hebrew word that's used in chapter 4.23 when God used it, that they may leave Egypt, Egypt and serve me. Serve, worship. That, that's the same Hebrew word. So Moses is saying, you know what? Go back to your work and worship me. God says, let them go that they may worship me. You can see Pharaoh standing in the place of God. Also, which is very interesting, in verse 1, it says in chapter 5, it says, this is what the Lord said. If you scroll down to chapter 5, verse 10, it says, this is what Pharaoh says, same Hebrew word too. Thus the Lord said, thus Pharaoh said. Setting himself up in the place of God. One commentator writes this, the critical issue to be settled is nothing less than who is in charge. Who has the authority over the people of Israel and ultimately over all nations and of all creation? The God of Israel or the gods of Egypt manifested in Pharaoh? So Pharaoh wants to be his own Lord. Pharaoh's like, I'm God. I want to be my own Lord and Savior. And let me tell you, that is every human heart. That is every human heart apart from the grace of Jesus. Wanting to be my own Lord and Savior. I want to justify myself. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. For those that weren't here, John 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. All of us live for something. All of us are seeking, all of us are running, all of us are clinging, all of us are worshiping, giving money and time and talents towards something or someone that will give us meaning, that will give us significance, that will give us a sense of security, a, a, a sense of I'm somebody, like Rocky. I just got to go to distance. I know if I go to distance, I'll, just, I'll be somebody. Right? That's my best Rocky impression. But whatever it is, we're enslaved to those things. Whatever it is that is essential, significant, and substantial as a means of justifying myself, that to which I worship will enslave me, if not for Jesus. The thing you hold dear, the thing that you say in the, in the depths of your heart when no one's around, the thing that you pursue, the thing that gets you most angry when it's taken, the thing that gives you the greatest joy when you have it, if I obtain that, if I feel that, it, I'll feel that my life has meaning. I'll know I'll have value. I'll, I'll feel significant. I'll know that I am somebody. And whatever that is, if not Christ, 
It enslaves you. It entraps you. And in rebellion, we say the same thing. Who's the Lord that I should obey him? And in and through the plagues, God wants to show us who he really is. We're all enslaved. We all need deliverance. The plagues show us that God is unique. You've been told there are multiple gods. Pharaoh thought the same thing. He's a pluralistic guy who believed in multiple gods in multiple ways. The God of the Bible is a unique God. He's a reigning ruler, sovereign over the earth. He's the creator of all that you see. And the plague shows us that uniqueness of God. It shows us the reality that your exodus, my exodus, my deliverance from slavery to sin is not done until it finds its final rest, its conclusion, its destination in the worship of the one true God. Then and only then we're free. Until we come to know, love, the one true God, we remain on the throne of our own lives, enslaved by the things we chase after. And it may give you the illusion for a season of power, a sense of being, a sense of being okay, but you know and I know it doesn't last. It is guaranteed to end in disaster. Only the true God has the wisdom and the power to govern the universe. He alone can set us free. The question spoken, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Next, the plagues. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, I have made you like God, right? In other words, you're standing in the place for me, a representative to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron and you shall go. You be the prophets, verse 2. You shall speak all that I commanded you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. I will personally lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel among them. In chapters 7 through 12, we have what is known as the plagues. We're not going to look at each one, but generally, let me give you five things. Five things that the plagues basically answer for us. Who is the Lord? In fact, if you read this narrative, you'll know that God is not only telling Egypt, you'll know me, you'll know me, but he says in chapter 7, verse 16, for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Not just for them, for all the earth. I'm going to show forth my power and authority so everyone, every living creature, in that day and today, that I am the great Lord. So, number one, what the plagues show us, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Number one, the plagues were done to declare God's authority, to declare God's authority, power, and really his supremacy and the right to reign and rule and judge the world. He's like, you have your gods, I am the God, I will judge and reign supremely over the world. I have the authority. Each one of the plagues speaks to and against and judges one of the gods, small g, of the Egyptians. The Nile, first plague, turned into blood. They worship the Nile. They were worshipers of the Nile. The Nile was a god, and it was a, the god of Apis, Apis, the god of the Nile. God smites it turns red. The second plague was the frogs come from the Nile against the judgment of their god called Heket, H-E-Q-E-T. It was a woman with a woman's body and a frog's head. 
Frogs were sacred. They weren't allowed to be killed. God sends the frogs. Third plague, the gnats sets judgment against their, their God of the gnats, of, of, uh, of the desert. And, and, and that third plague brought about the magicians. See, the magicians were trying to copy these, these, the, the plagues, and they did up to that point. Finally, the magician says, we can't do this. In fact, we can't because the finger of God. This is the finger of God. The magician tells Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But the third plague is like, this, we can't do this. The fourth plague, flies, judgment against the fly God. Fly God, that's pretty cool, right? The fly God. God distinguishes and says, you know what? On this plague, I'm not going to send the flies over the land on, on Goshen where the Israelites, I'm just, I'm going to distinguish. Watch this. I'm the God of creation. Watch this. Flies, you go to Egypt, upper part of Egypt, Goshen, where the Israelites stay out of there. And that's exactly what they do. The fifth livestock, the goddess Hathar, uh, each one of them showing that God is in charge. The, the cattle are dying. There's, there's eco problems going on. He's destroying the, the economy of Egypt. Sixth plague's boils. Seventh and eighth locusts. Ninth plague darkness, which was huge because the, the sun god Re, R-E, was like the top gods of the, all the gods. And Pharaoh was like, stood in his place. So when God on the ninth plague shut the place down in complete darkness, God's like, yeah, okay, I got this. Your gods are nothing. Each one, each one of the plagues, God judges. And for three days, the land of Egypt was smothered with unearthly darkness. But the Israelites had light. That's interesting. I'd like to have seen that. All of Israel, pitch black, can't even see in front of your face. And down there, over in the yonder, there's some light. They're like, they got light. Right? It's not a storm went down and your block gets hit, right? I think it's safe to say when the Israelites finally left Egypt, they had a clear picture of God's authority, power, supremacy to reign and rule over the earth. Number two, the plagues were signs to validate the message of, of Moses, the mediator and the messenger. The plague served as a way in which God said, that's mine, he's mine, he's speaking for me. We see that in the New Testament. Jesus comes with signs and wonders pointing to and authenticating that he is the divine Savior, the Messiah, the God-man who came. Isaiah spoke about it with the miracles that Jesus performed pointed to the fact that he was who he said he was. In Acts, we've been studying, you know, the apostles, same thing. It authenticated the message by the works of power and signs and wonders. So not only is God has authority, but God is authenticating his message. Number three, this may take you for a shock. The plagues were designed to show God's kindness and mercy. Like, really? Yeah. God came to Israel in Exodus and said in chapter 34, I am a compassionate, a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I love, I forgive, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he says, I'm not going to leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children of their children for the sin of the parents. And he, and he talks about the generational sin. So he says, I'm loving, I'm kind, I'm compassionate, I'm long-suffering, but there comes a time those who sin will be punished. And the, the plagues show that character, that, that attribute of God. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Could not Moses have went in there and said the very first time to Pharaoh, listen, let my people go so that they may worship me. If not, watch this. Zap, 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 zap. Put five guys dust and then point at Pharaoh and go, all right, you're next. Be like, you can go. 
right? No argument there. You know, turn him into a crocodile. Let me see. This guy, a bird. And, you know, Pharaoh would have freaked out. What is so interesting is that throughout the narratives of the plagues is the grace and mercy of God. For instance, he warned Pharaoh before each and every plague. Sometimes gave him a week to repent and avoid the disaster that was going to come. God turned the Nile River to blood, but you know what the Bible says? He spared the underground water table and the Egyptians dug wells and drank water. When he sent the plague of hail, I think it's the sixth plague. When he sent the plague of hail, he told them at the exact time it would take place. You know what God told Pharaoh? Get your cattle out from the street. From, from, not from the street, I'm from the street. Get your cattle out from the grass. Bring them in. Because about two o'clock, I'm sending hail and everything. That's grace. That's mercy. He even destroyed the plague of locusts that he brought on them by drowning them in the Red Sea and prophesying and saying, listen, don't take my kindness for weakness. Judgment is coming. Finally, on the ninth plague, God sends darkness over the earth. What do you do when it's completely dark you can't see in front of you? I'll tell you one thing you don't do. You don't go anywhere. That's a time of reflection right there. Like, you really want to do this? Hmm, three days. Pitch black. Can't do nothing. I can only hear it now. I'm going to, I'm going to get them. Not, not like I repent. So he gives him time to repent and, and gives him days to reflect. He still doesn't listen. The plagues reveal that God is patient, merciful, but there is a place of no return. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. There are some bad theologians, and if you ever read this, throw the book away, that say the Bible teaches us the Old and New Testament. There's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. That's heresy. That's a lie. One God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You see the grace of God throughout all the Old Testament. Say, well, he's kind of, you know, he's, he's kind of like a teenager with, you know, a bad attitude. No. No, he's the God of grace, mercy, and kindness throughout your Bible. In fact, if you really want to push that, I think the gospel, like the plague, serves simultaneously to, sh to show us that we need to trust God, his power to save, and to remind us that a day will come when Jesus will judge and rule the world. You either are saved under the blood of the Lamb, which we will see, or you will be cast into eternal damnation. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So God is patient, but God will bring judgment upon those who reject Jesus because they will stand guilty of their sins, know the Lord. So authentication, excuse me, authority over the world, authentication of Moses, God's kindness in the plagues. Fourth, God shows and gives us those ten plagues and lays them out in Egypt to show he is sovereign over the world. God is unwilling to share his glory, his majesty, his weightiness, his value with somebody else. I'll tell you that right now. God is jealous for his own glory. One of the main ways that God does that in the book of Exodus is through Pharaoh's unwillingness to repent, the hardening of his heart, but then God in his sovereignty changes Moses' heart. That tells us the difference between obedience and disobedience is not the absence of sin, but rather the presence of God's grace, softening, convicting, and renewing the heart of the believer. Ultimately, the difference between Moses and Pharaoh was not that Moses was free of sinful choices, but rather God chose to have mercy to Moses. During the account, you read, if you read this on your own, you'll see, you'll see Moses hardened his heart. You'll see Moses' heart was hardened. 
And then we see in the scripture that God hardened Pharaoh's heart himself. I've said this before, track with me, okay? What that teaches us, which is all throughout scripture, I don't know how you get away from it, that Pharaoh's hard heart shows us the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The mystery of God's divine sovereignty reigning and ruling over his creation, and yet we are responsible for our choices. Pharaoh hardened his heart, yes. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, yes. How do you reconcile it? Some theologians say, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and therefore he was confirming the decision that Pharaoh had already made. They tried to give God an escape. Unfortunately for them, the Bible's clear. God told Moses back in chapter 4, go speak to Pharaoh. This is before even Moses went. Go speak to Pharaoh, but you know what? I'm hardening his heart. So that doesn't stand very true. While it is true that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, the deeper truth is that even this was part of God's sovereign plan. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not God's response to Pharaoh, but his purpose for Pharaoh. Let me say it again. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not God's response to Pharaoh, but his purpose for Pharaoh. God did this to demonstrate his authority, his power, his omnipotence, and his patience and his sovereignty. And yet we see that Pharaoh is responsible for the choices he makes. God revealed himself to Pharaoh. God told him, God, God told him what was going to happen, and Pharaoh chose to respond in rebellion. You say, wait a minute, Pastor. God is sovereign and does all that he pleases, and yet man is responsible to him? Can you explain that? No. There's your answer. No. Are you telling me that there are things about God that you don't understand? Yes. Yes. Right? Very proudly, yes. I'm not God. Right? I'm not God. But I'll tell you this. How God causes all things to happen, but somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices is a mystery. But to deny it is wrong. I don't understand it. I trust God's word. I trust what he says. He gave us his word. We are responsible. He is sovereign. For me, it's by faith alone and the scripture alone. Now, the hardening of, I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you one thing. This is not what happened. Pharaoh did not look over the people of Israel and all of a sudden go, you know what? They are such a nice group of people. Look at them busting there, you know, to get those bricks made. What? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start loving them. And God comes along and goes, no, you're not. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. But the authority of the word, that's not what happened. Here's what the Bible says about the human heart. Not pipe psychology, not Oprah Winfrey. This is the Bible, okay? The Bible. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who could understand it? Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in sin, in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And one of my favorite Bible verses is, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, Genesis 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every, and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So it's not rocket science. Your heart, my heart is hard. And softening only happens by the grace of God. We're all in the same boat. Some people may conclude 
that then God is unjust. I don't know if you ever heard that. God is unjust. God chose, God hardens, God softens. God is unjust for allowing people to have hard hearts and for keeping them the way they are or even causing them to get harder for his own glory, for the supremacy of his glory, for the, for the, for the fame of his name. He's unjust. And if that's how you feel, you're not alone. And, and I got great news for you. The Bible has an answer. Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. You say to me then, why does he still find fault? Man, you hear that. I got an answer for you. For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? A dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, you see that in the plagues, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He's declaring his glory, he's declaring his patience through Moses, even though his heart is hard, in order to make known the riches of his glory, the weightiness of his value for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before for glory. God will not Share his glory with no one. We're not to impose our humanistic ideas about God, but embrace him for who he is and who has revealed himself in Scripture. The Scripture is perfectly clear. God is sovereign. We are responsible. Scripture is also clear. God is just. God is righteous. God is good. God is perfect. God is holy and God is loving. And although we can't comprehend, we stand on the authority of word of the word of God. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, allowed his heart to be hard in order to multiply the plagues to magnify his name in both his justice and his mercy. Two places I want to point you to and we'll move on. God is perfectly just in what he did. Exodus chapter 9 says this. Now listen. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, Pharaoh, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Listen to the next verse. You, O Pharaoh, are still exalting yourself against my people. Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all the host, and the Egyptian will know that I am the God. I will harden his heart. I will go after him. I will get glory over Pharaoh. It says it again. He's not sharing his glory. God's showing his authority. God's showing his authentication of his prophets. God is kind and merciful and showing his kind and merciful. God is sovereign over the world and do as he pleases. We're still responsible. And finally, number five, Dr. Tim Keller in his sermon called Who is the Lord points out very well that the plagues were designed to show that when you disobey God, you disobey his word, you disobey his, world, his word and will, you refuse to bring him glory, there's disintegration in your life. When people have read the plagues, one of the things they've noticed is the plagues have somewhat of a natural progression. 
there's blood in the sea, then the frogs come out of the blood, the frogs die, there's, there's carcasses everywhere, then all of a sudden there's gnats, and then when gnats are eating the dead carcasses in the land, I'm sorry, I know we haven't eaten yet, but they're eating the dead carcasses in the land, and what happens then, then they're, they're spreading diseases, there's boils, so you see somewhat of a natural progression. It was supernatural, don't get me wrong, but there's a, there's a, there's a natural order and a progression of the plagues themselves. And what theologians have pointed out is that this ecological disaster, you know, the plagues and the skin things, all those things, is really an undoing, a reversal, a, a, a unraveling of Genesis 1 and 2, where God speaks and creates, and then there's this, this disorder, there's this chaos, there isn't this, this, this harmonious oneness in the earth until God speaks. It was void and empty, and then God speaks and brings beauty. There was unraveling, then there is beauty. And what's happening now is there's beauty and there's unraveling. Where there was once was a, a beauty and interpendence are in harmonious, you know, uh, uh, flourishing, wholeness, light, order. Now it's unraveling. Every day, creation is being unraveled in these plagues. Animals, the weather destroys the animals, the animals, the insects, the plants, so and so. As if God is saying, my power, my word, my authority is not arbitrary. It's not just a naked display of power like I'm better than you. It's when you disobey me and you run and you won't heed my word, you won't reheed my way, you won't submit yourself to, to me. There's an unraveling, there's a disintegration in your life. As you unbay, you unleash these forces of chaos and disorder. But if you obey, there can be harmonious relationship. There can be, there can be a, a sense of oneness, wholeness. Not simply because God is God, but God is your maker. You've been creating the image and likeness of God. And when we understand that, we'll know that when we disobey, judgment is natural as well. He's also our judge. There comes a time. So in other words, the consequences of disobedience are absolutely just. Because we refuse, as God reveals himself, as God points himself, shows us grace, shows us kindness, shows Pharaoh, and he just refuses, refuses, refuses. Until finally, the Passover. Point three. There's probably no better answer to the question, who is the Lord, than chapter 12. Go to chapter 12 of Exodus. Because the center of this Passover meal is, is God in the gospel. In chapter 11, right before we get to chapter 12, God announces to Pharaoh through Moses, tell him, he says to Moses, tell Pharaoh that uh, at midnight in the midst of Egypt, every firstborn in the land is going to die. I sent you nine plagues, the tenth one will come, and even your firstborn, even your glory, Pharaoh, I'm taken. I will not share my glory. I will take the firstborn, the man who will sit on your throne. I'm taking him. Chapter 12 opens up. Moses tells all Israel, listen, this is what you do. Take a male lamb without blemish. Kill it at the lamb at twilight. Verse 7. Let me get the next slide up. Verse 7. Then take some of the blood and put it on the doorstep and the lintel of the house, the frame in which they would eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, and the unleavened bread and the bitter herb, they shall eat it. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. 
I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you in the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague, the final plague, will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Go down to verse 21. Then Moses called to the elders of Israel and said, listen, go. We need to obey. We don't need disintegration. We need to obey. Select lambs. Get them according to your clan. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintels, the doors, and the frame and in the basin. None of you shall go out of your house. Don't go out of your house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. What does it mean don't go outside? Don't go outside. Wait until the morning. Don't go outside. The destroyer's coming. You know why that is? Because the destroyer is not a respecter of persons. Because when judgment comes, it's not just on Egypt. When God shows up and judges, everyone gets judged. Notice God does not say, listen, Moses, the Israelites, they're my people. I have chosen them. Don't worry about it. You can go outside. Just hang out. Just wait. When I get done, we'll move on. He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell Moses that. Because when justice comes down on human evil, nobody. There's not the good guys and the bad guys. No one can stand under the judgment of God. It comes on everyone. Everyone has sinned. All have fallen short. Each of us have tainted with sin. We know it in our own souls that we are not right and perfect in everything we do. So yes, it was the Israelites that were oppressed. Yes, it was the Israelites who were in slavery. Yes, it was the Israelites who were called to a people to go out into the land to worship the one true God. But it was also the Israelites that had to take cover under the land because when justice comes down, they're just as bad as the Egyptians. Just like you and I. The whole world is corrupted and we're part of the problem. What is the hope? Sacrifice the lamb. Without blemish, put the blood over the house. Every single house that evening, every single house in that evening in Egypt, that night, there was either the death of the firstborn son or the death of a dead lamb. It was one or the other. In other words, a lamb took the place and was substituted and got what the firstborn son deserved. That night when that Jewish boy sat down in his home and he saw the lamb, he looked at that lamb and said, that should be me. That was sacrificed in my place. That blood was shed for me. The only reason I'm not dead is because he died in my place. So what's happening here in Passover in the Exodus? God is saying when justice will come down, when justice comes down, I don't care your race, your economic status, how smart you are, your social standings, the color of your skin, the culture you come from, everyone is subjected to judgment. No one can survive when God's justice comes. Listen, even though Israel was in slavery, they were not exempt to judgment unless they took cover under the substitutionary blood of the Lamb. God says to them, if you go out and you come out from under that covering, you will die. But what he's actually saying, now follow me, i got two more minutes, now listen carefully. What God is actually saying to them is, even though I am delivering you tonight, it is not the ultimate deliverance that you need. There's still a debt of sin that needs to be paid. You need a deeper 
and more thorough deliverance than one night. As important as the lamb was that was sacrificed on the night of the Passover, there is to come a greater lamb. As great as the deliverance was that night on the Passover that God brought his people out, there is a greater deliverer. You need more than just social, economic, get me out of physical slavery. What you need is freedom and forgiveness and freedom and and deliverance from sin, death, and hell. Fast forward, New Testament. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, takes his disciples together and celebrates the Passover meal. The same Passover that they just, we just talked about, Jesus celebrates it. He stands up and he says two things that rock their world. First, he stands up and everyone knows that Jesus is the presider. He's the father. He's the one that's going to explain to them. Every year, they explain the Passover over and over and over again. The father would stand up and share about the misery and the slavery and how God delivered them. And what they expect Jesus to say is he takes the bread, he's supposed to say, this is the bread of misery which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. All that are hungry, come and eat. All that are needy, come, keep the Paschal, keep the Passover. But he takes the bread, he breaks it, and he says, take, eat, this is my body. This is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my misery. This is the bread of my suffering. Because I will lead an ultimate exodus. I am the ultimate deliverer. I will lead an ultimate deliverance from bondage. This is the bread of my affliction. I'm going to suffer for you. So that you can have freedom. Not just from physical, political, but bondage from death itself. I am. He tells the disciples, the ultimate Moses. I am leading the ultimate exodus. What Jesus is making very clear is that all the sacrifices, this deliverance from bondage was pointing to him. By requiring a substituted sacrifice for the firstborn son, God is teaching his people that there would come an ultimate son who would be sacrificed, an ultimate lamb who would be slaughtered and blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And one last thing. If you read the Passover in the New Testament, Jesus' and disciples, in every account, there's one thing that's missing. And there's no mention of Jesus actually eating the lamb. Why? Because Jesus is the lamb. John the Baptist looked at him and said, Jesus, when he saw him coming, he said, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he was the main course. He is the lamb who was slain. He is the ultimate Moses. He's the one who gave his life. Do you know that on the Bible says that on the third hour of Jesus' death, there was what? Darkness. You know what the ninth plague was? Darkness. Get ready. You know when God came and killed the firstborn? Twilight. Darkness. Darkness is a picture of sin. And when Jesus on the cross and darkness came, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because at that moment, all our sin was poured out on him and God turned his face. And the intimacy that he had was somehow, some way lost while he bore our sin, took our wrath and our foolishness on himself on the cross. And he cries out in darkness, in judgment, as Jesus takes our judgment for us in our place, dies where we should have died. And we can look at the cross and say, that's what I deserve, but that's what Jesus did for me. That's what Jesus did for me. The Son of God becomes our sin offering. Because as bad as it was to die a crucial death, nothing was like taking the wrath upon himself in our place, dying for us as judgment of the sin. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? 
He is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who was slain for you. Slain for your freedom from slavery. Slain for your deliverance and rescue. And the deeper you see that, the, the more you take it in, the more you press it into your heart, the more you will obey, the more you will have a deeper experience of freedom. Christ becomes your greatest possession and the only one who can command us to obey and yet set us free. This table, which we'll get up there, Billy, if you could pull that table up. Chris, just put it in the front here. The band's going to come up in a moment. And maybe God's been speaking to your heart. Maybe there's aisles in your life. There's things in your life that you're clinging to, trying to, to get some sort of self-justification to prove yourself. And Christ is saying, I've done it all for you. I've done it all for you. I went to the cross. I died. I rose again. His blood was shed. Maybe you need to respond in faith and come and take the bread and the cup for the first time as a Christian. I, I choose to lay down my life. I'm going to trust Christ. The band's going to play. We're going to respond by repenting of sin. Call the whole church to repentance. Confess your sin. And then after a time, you can get up and take of the bread and celebrate the forgiveness that God has offered to us in Christ. There is one deliverer, one redeemer, one ultimate sacrifice, one perfect sacrifice that takes away our sins. When Jesus died, the veil was ripped in two. Come to Jesus. If you've never come to Jesus, come to Jesus. He died for you. God's been showing us for a thousand years. You need to trust Christ. You need to repent means turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And then come and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story that you have given to us that's thousands of years old, but yet still points to the great Savior. As Moses points to the ultimate Savior, Jesus we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come in our midst, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would open our spirits to receive the good news of Christ. If there's anyone here that has not uh, come to faith, Lord, we pray that you would give them eyes to see the glory of Christ. Father, we pray that as we repent of sins, you will cleanse us, as your word tells us, from all our sins, to wash us clean, use us as vessels of your glory and praise. So, Father, as we sing, as we respond, Father, get glory today. We don't want to share, you're not going to share that glory and we don't want it. We want to give you the glory and praise and treasure you as our greatest treasure to be set free from our slaveries of trying to do things our own way. Our own lords, our own saviors, trying to justify ourselves. You are the one who justifies and you are the one who created us. So Father, we just pray that this response would be pleasing in thy sight. In Jesus' good name.